Adam, lovely to see you. I wondered whether you might be in your office, but I didn't like to call. Too intimidating, my dear. I'm not sure they'd let me in, or if I'd get out, if they did. I've been lunching at a hotel in Petit France with my brother. He comes to London once a year and always stays there. He's a devout Roman Catholic, and the hotel is convenient for Westminster Cathedral. They know him, and are very tolerant. Tolerant of what? wondered Dalgleish. And was Ackroyd referring to the hotel, the cathedral, or both? He said, I didn't know you had a brother, Conrad. I hardly know it myself we meet so seldom. He's something of a recluse. He added, he lives in Kidderminster, as if that fact explained all. Dalgleish was on the point of making tactful murmurings of imminent departure when his companion said, I suppose, dear boy, I couldn't bend you to my will. I want to spend a couple of hours at the Dupaine Museum in Hampstead. Why not join me? You know the Dupaine, of course. I've heard of it, but never visited. But you should, you should. It's a fascinating place, dedicated to the interwar years 1919 through 1938. Small, but comprehensive. They have some good pictures. Nash, Wyndham Lewis, Ivan Hitchens, Ben Nicholson. You'd be particularly interested in the library, first editions and some holographs, and, of course, the interwar poets. Oh, do come. Another time, perhaps. You never manage another time, do you? But now I've caught you regarded as fate. I'm sure you have your jag tucked up somewhere in the Met's underground garage. We can drive. You mean I can drive? And you'll come back to Smith's cottage for tea, won't you? Nelly will never forgive me if you don't. How is Nelly? Bonnie, thank you. Our doctor retired last month. After twenty years together, it was a sad parting. Still, his successor seems to understand our constitutions, and it might be as well to have a younger man. Conrad and Nelly Ackroyd's marriage was so well established that few people now bothered to wonder at its incongruity, or to indulge in prurient speculation about its possible consummation. Physically, they could hardly have been more different. Conrad was plump, short, and dark, with inquisitive bright eyes, and moved as sprightly as a dancer on small, nimble feet. Nelly was at least three inches taller, pale-skinned and flat-chested, and wore her fading blonde hair curled in plaits on each side of her head like earphones. Her hobby was collecting first editions of 1920s and 1930s girls' school stories. Her collection of Angela Brazil's was regarded as unique. Conrad and Nellie's enthusiasms were their house and garden, meals, Nellie was a superb cook, their two Siamese cats, and the indulgence of Conrad's mild hypochondria. Conrad still owned and edited the Paternoster Review, notable for the virulence of its unsigned reviews and articles. In private life he was the kindest of jackals. In his editorial role an unrepentant hide. A number of his friends, whose willfully overburdened lives inhibited the enjoyment of all but necessary pleasures, somehow found time to take afternoon tea with the Ackroyds in their neat Edwardian villa in Swiss Cottage, with its comfortable sitting-room and atmosphere of timeless indulgence. Dalgleish was occasionally among them. The meal was a nostalgic and unhurried ritual the delicate cups with their handles aligned, 
the thin brown bread and butter, bite-sized cucumber sandwiches and homemade sponge and fruit cakes, made their expected appearance, brought in by an elderly maid, who would have been a gift to a casting agent recruiting actors for an Edwardian soap opera. To older visitors, the tea brought back memories of a more leisurely age, and, to all, the temporary illusion that the dangerous world was as susceptible as was this domesticity to order, reason, comfort, and peace. To spend the early evening gossiping with the Ackroyds would, today, be unduly self-indulgent. All the same, Dalgleish could see that it wouldn't be easy to find a valid excuse for refusing to drive his friend to Hampstead. He said, I'll drive you to the Dupain with pleasure, but I might not be able to stay if you plan a long visit. Don't worry, dear boy. I'll get a cab back. It took Dalgleish only a few minutes to collect the papers he needed from his office, hear from his P.A. what had happened during his absence, and drive his Jaguar from the underground car park. Ackroyd was standing near the revolving sign, looking like a child obediently waiting for the grown-ups to collect him. He wrapped his cloak carefully around him, climbed into the car with grunts of satisfaction, struggled impotently with the seat belt, and allowed Dalgleish to strap him in. They were travelling along Birdcage Walk before he spoke. I saw you at the South Bank last Saturday. You were standing by the window on level two, looking out at the river with, I might say, a remarkably beautiful young woman. Without looking at him, Dalgleish said evenly, You should have come up and been introduced. It did occur to me, until I realized that I would be de trop, so I contented myself with looking at your two profiles, hers more than yours, with more curiosity than might have been considered polite. Was I wrong in detecting a certain constraint, or should I say restraint? Dalgleish did not reply, and glancing at his face at the sensitive hands for a second tightening on the wheel, Ackroyd thought it prudent to change the subject. He said, I've rather given up the gossip in the review. It isn't worth printing unless it's fresh, accurate, and scurrilous, and then you risk the chance of being sued. People are so litigious. I'm trying to diversify somewhat. That's what this visit to the Dupain is all about. I'm writing a series of articles on murder as a symbol of its age. Murder as social history, if you like. Nelly thinks I could be on to a winner with this one, Adam. She's very excited. Take the most notorious Victorian crimes, for example. They couldn't have happened in any other century. Those cluttered, claustrophobic drawing rooms, the outward respectability, the female subservience. And divorce, if a wife could find grounds for it, which was difficult enough, made her a social pariah. No wonder the poor dears started soaking the arsenical fly papers. But those are the easiest years. The interwar years are more interesting. They have a room at the Dupain dedicated entirely to the most notorious murder cases of the 1920s and 30s. Not, I assure you, to titillate public interest. It's not that kind of museum. But, to prove my point, murder, the unique crime, is a paradigm of its age. He paused and looked at Dalgleish intensely for the first time. You're looking a little worn, dear boy. Is everything all right? You're not ill? No, Conrad, I'm not ill. Nellie said only yesterday that we'd never see you. You're too busy heading that innocuously named squad set up to take over murders of a sensitive nature. 
Sensitive nature sounds oddly bureaucratic. How does one define a murder of an insensitive nature? Still, we all know what it means. If the Lord Chancellor is found in his robes and wig brutally battered to death on the woolsack, call in Adam Dalgleish. I trust not. Do you envisage a brutal battering while the house is sitting? No doubt with some of their lordships looking on with satisfaction. Of course not. No, it would happen after the house had risen. Then why would he be sitting on the woolsack? He would have been murdered somewhere else and the body moved. You should read detective fiction, Adam. Real-life murder today, apart from being commonplace and, forgive me, a little vulgar, is inhibiting of the imagination. Still, moving the body would be a problem. It would need considerable thought. I can see that it might not work. Ackroyd spoke with regret. Dalgleish wondered if his next enthusiasm would be writing detective fiction. If so, it was one that should be discouraged. Murder, real or fictional, and in any of its manifestations, was on the face of it an unlikely enthusiasm for Ackroyd. But his curiosity had always ranged widely, and once seized by an idea, he pursued it with the dedicated enthusiasm of a lifelong expert. And the idea seemed likely to persist. He went on. And isn't there a convention that no one dies in the palace of Westminster? Don't they shove the corpse into the ambulance with indecent haste, and later state that he died on the way to hospital? Now that would create some interesting clues about the actual time of death. If it were a question of inheritance, for example, timing could be important. I've got the title, of course. Death on the Woolsack. Dalgleish said, It would be very time-consuming. I should stick to murder as a paradigm of its age. What are you expecting to get from the Dupin? Inspiration, perhaps. But mostly information. The murder room is remarkable. That's not its official name, by the way, but it's how we all refer to it. There are contemporary newspaper reports of the crime and the trial, fascinating photographs including some originals, and actual exhibits from the scene of the murder. I can't think how old Max Dupin got his hands on those, but I believe he wasn't always scrupulous when it came to acquiring what he wanted. And, of course, the museum's interest in murder coincides with mine. The only reason the old man set up the murder room was to relate the crime to its age, otherwise he would have seen the room as pandering to depraved popular taste. I've already selected my first case. It's the obvious one. Mrs. Edith Thompson. You know it, of course. Yes, I know it. Everyone interested in real-life murder, the defects of the criminal justice system, or the horror and anomalies of capital punishment, knew of the Thompson Bywaters case. It had spawned novels, plays, films, and its share of the journalism of moral outrage. Apparently oblivious of his companion's silence, Ackroyd prattled happily on. Consider the facts. Here we have an attractive young woman of twenty-eight married to a dull shipping clerk four years her senior and living in a dull street in a drab East London suburb. Do you wonder she found relief in a fantasy life? We have no evidence that Thompson was dull. You're not suggesting dullness is a justification for murder? I can think of less credible motives, dear boy. 
Edith Thompson is intelligent as well as attractive. She's holding down a job as the manageress of a millinery firm in the city, and in those days that meant something. She goes on holiday with her husband and his sister, meets Frederick Bywaters, a P&O line steward eight years her junior, and falls desperately in love. When he's at sea, she writes him passionate letters which, to the unimaginative mind, could certainly be interpreted as an incitement to murder. She claims that she's put ground electric light bulbs in Percy's porridge, the probability of which the forensic pathologist Bernard Spilsbury discounted at the trial. And then on 3 October 1922, after an evening at the Criterion Theatre in London, when they're walking home, by waters springs out and stabs Percy Thompson to death. Edith Thompson is heard crying out, Don't! Oh, don't! But the letters damned her, of course. If Bywaters had destroyed them, she'd be alive today. Dalgley said, Hardly. She'd be a hundred and eight. But could you justify this as a specifically mid-twentieth century crime? The jealous husband, the young lover, the sexual enslavement. It could have happened fifty or a hundred years earlier. It could happen today. But not in exactly the same way. Fifty years earlier, she wouldn't have had the chance of working in the city for one thing. It's unlikely she'd ever have met Bywaters. Today, of course, she would have gone to university, found an outlet for her intelligence, or disciplined her seething imagination, and probably ended up rich and successful. I see her as a romantic novelist. She certainly wouldn't have married Percy Thompson, and if she did go in for murder, psychiatrists today would be able to diagnose a fantasist. The jury would take a different view of extramarital sex, and the judge wouldn't indulge his deep prejudice against married women who took lovers eight years their junior, a prejudice undoubtedly shared by a 1922 jury. Dalglish was silent. Ever since, as an eleven-year-old, he had read of that distraught and drugged woman being half-dragged to her execution. The case had lain at the back of memory heavy as a coiled snake. Poor, dull Percy Thompson had not deserved to die. But did anyone deserve what his widow had suffered during those last days in the condemned cell when she finally realized that there was a real world outside even more dangerous than her fantasies, and that there were men in it who, on a precise day, at a precise hour, would take her out and judicially break her neck? Even as a boy, the case had confirmed him as an abolitionist. Had it, he wondered, exerted a subtler and more persuasive influence, the conviction never spoken but increasingly rooted in his comprehension, that strong passions had to be subject to the will, that a completely self-absorbed love could be dangerous and the price too high to pay. Wasn't that what he had